the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Michigan's new 12th congressional district includes part of the city of Detroit, part of South Oakland, and western Wayne counties. And voters are going to have two choices on November 8th from the major parties in that district. Stephen Elliott is a Republican small business owner. He says he wants to, quote, protect the dream here in southeast Michigan. Rashida Tlaib is the current congresswoman who represents much of this district and has become a national voice for social justice and equality. We are going to talk with both of them next on Detroit Today, right after this news from NPR. On 101.9 WDET, I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you have decided to join us. So as we get closer to November 8th and Election Day, there are a lot of congressional races here in Michigan that are heating up in parts of West Michigan and in Macomb County in particular. The races appear to be toss-ups, and you've got several others that could be close coming uh, into November 8th. The 12th Congressional District doesn't appear to be quite like that, though. Businessman and Republican Stephen Elliott is up against Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib, who is now a household name and has grown her profile well beyond her district and our state. But despite Tlaib being the favorite, given the overwhelming demographic of the district that she's running in, it's still under contention, and it is ultimately up to voters to decide now and up to Election Day who is going to be the candidate who will represent them in Washington. Stephen Elliott is a veteran. He's a business owner and tattoo artist, and he says he's running as an American patriot. He believes we need to lower crime, lower taxes, and tighten up the southern border. A little later in the hour, we are going to talk with Congresswoman Tlaib about why she's running for re-election. Also talk about the four years uh, that she has already been in office. But right now, we want to get to know her opponent on November 8th, Stephen Elliott. Uh, we've invited him here to talk about why he's running for Congress, what he hopes to accomplish if he's elected, and what he thinks his chances are of beating his opponent. Stephen Elliott, it's really great to meet you. Welcome to Detroit Today. Uh, good morning, Stephen, and, and thank you for uh, having me on today. I, I really appreciate it. I, I would like to make one small correction. Sure. Um, I am not a tattoo artist. Uh, that is just something that they posted in the uh, MLive article to kind of uh, lower my credibility or my um, – to be able to represent the district. I actually owned multiple tattoo locations that I grew over 20 years and okay. I sold those last year and I currently own a medical spa and an IV center. So, okay. Okay. Um, That's an important correction. So, so when you owned the tattoo, uh, shops, were you, were you a tattoo artist? 
I, I did tattoo for a short time, okay. um, but but it, that is not really what I I, I am. And I okay. I was I was an entrepreneur <laughs> who got into the who got into the tattoo business and scaled that over twenty years and I grew see. that into uh, supplies and medical supplies and uh, and then that turned into taking doing tattoo removal. Uh, and like I said, right now I strictly own a uh, full medical facial aesthetic center and an IV center. So that was just something that MLive posted in their article to kind of make me let, look less qualified for I the see. position. Okay, well, I, I got to say, don't sleep on tattoo artists. Uh, I'm no. a big fan, and I've got oh. a few myself, so that, I don't <laughs> see that as, as uh, yeah. uh, a, a way of criticizing someone by saying they're a tattoo artist, but you're right. It's it's important to be to be accurate with that. So, well, and uh, I, I, think, I think current representation of who I really am and, and what my qualifications are and, and what I can bring to the district with fiscal responsibility, uh, making logical, common sense decisions like I have over the last 21 years um, is really important to represent. If, if we're looking at true representation, the, the community needs to know exactly who would be representing them. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, let's start, let's start there. Uh, tell us who you are, why you're running for Congress, and why you think you'd be the right fit to represent uh, this new 12th congressional district. Yeah, well, I'm running for Congress because after 20 years of being in business um, and just seeing what's what's going on with the economy, uh, and it's and really when I got out of uh, after I sold my company, you know, watching the economy start to go down, inflation rise, the cost of living go up, um, and I, I think it's, it was time for a change. And you know, I, I decided to run in this particular district to run against uh, Rashida Tlaib. Because I believe her, some of her policies and the things that she um, tries to push on the congressional level is uh, the complete opposite of what helps the local average American family when it comes to taxes, when it comes to uh, wages, when it when it comes to inflation, when it comes to you know food costs. Um, the policies that she represents don't rep- really represent the the people of the 12th district doesn't represent Michigan and really doesn't represent American values. So uh, give me some specifics there. What, what policies are you referring to that? Well, asking, asking Jamie Dimon and all the other banks to stop funding fossil fuel uh, would just increase the cost of gas prices even more, which would continue to hurt the lower and middle income class people you know, gas prices are over double what they were two years ago. So if you're making less than thirty, forty thousand dollars a year, but now you're paying twenty to thirty dollars more a week at the pump, you know, which is a hundred and twenty dollars a month, we're looking at fifteen hundred dollars more a year, and that's post tax money. You know, that's the difference between someone being able to go on vacation and with the cost of uh, with the rising inflation, the cost of food, now it's coming down to people deciding if they're gonna even eat, if they're gonna you know, there, there's talk, and I've 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 heard some 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 news and some articles that I've read about people con- considering not doing Thanksgiving this year because they just can't afford to purchase that extra meal. Mm. So, so I I, I I know what policy you're talking about there, which is of course uh, saying, look, we've got to get away from fossil fuels onto renewables and uh, alternative 
energy. Uh, mm-hmm. My first question is whether you think there's a value in doing that. Of course, no, nobody wants gas prices to be higher, but the push toward alternatives is one of the things that that is making you know oil less less in demand, and it's making the the, the, the price go up. What, how do you balance those two? Well, I don't think oil is less in demand. I just think we have less of it right now. You know, turning down the Keystone, turning off the Keystone pipeline basically just shut, you know, created a supply and demand issue. But I do think, you know, everything, you know, switching into renewable energies is not a bad thing. And it it, it can and should be done, but it needs to be done over time. You know, there is, it took an entire generation to build a fossil fuel economy. So to just cut it off, which is going to increase the, the increase the amount or the cost of gas, we don't really have the infrastructure set up. We don't have the education system set up yet to be able to provide um, the infrastructure for renewable energies. So what we need to do is we need to have an actual plan over a legitimate period of time in a transition where we're actually getting these colleges and these schools to start training on careers and jobs for, for renewable energies and we start building an infrastructure for renewable energies. If we all go to electric tomorrow, we couldn't handle it. If something happened like in Florida, everybody would be we stuck. So we need to have a plan and a process, and we need to do that over time. Well, isn't that so what the it, legislation that just passed does? It, it over time, uh, moves us away from fossil fuels, encourages development and technology that will allow us to, to get to alternatives? But not if we're cutting off fossil fuels right away. If we're cutting it off right away, it's increasing. It increases. It should be a slow. It has to be over time. Okay. So, so, I, I, so my second question is, uh, you, you say that that's the reason that gas prices are higher. Uh, the, the 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 cost per barrel of crude. Uh, has been pretty constant across uh, a, a long period of time now. And if you go back to the last time uh, they were where they are now, gas prices were almost $2 a gallon cheaper than they are now. So the, the companies that, that produce and distribute and refine the oil are actually just charging us more for something that uh, they charged us less for um, a decade ago, what, what what what's your what's your answer to that? And do you think that we have a responsibility to say to them, "Hey, this is price gouging"? Well, I don't think it's price gouging when we actually turned off the Keystone Pipeline and we cut our own demand out. You know, two years ago we were energy independent; we were actually exporting oil. Um, so, based on administration policies, by not by cutting out land leases, allowing these companies to produce more oil to bring the cost down. It's just it, it, it becomes into a supply and demand issue. So if, if we can't manufacture, if we have if we're manufacturing more, then we have more than the demand. That's going to bring the price down. But when we're manufacturing less, it's going to bring the price up. But again, the cost to the producers is the same as it was when gas prices were cheaper. So so what explains why they are two dollars a, a, a gallon higher right now? That 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 doesn't make sense. Well, it was because it's their, the, the ability to produce, they're, they're, they cannot produce enough. If, if we're not able to produce as much as we if need to If the cost produce, to them is the same as it was when gas was $2 cheaper, why is it $2 more? Because we're using more, we don't have enough. 
you know I'm saying you can I, I understand what you're saying the cost that produces the same but if you're if you're still if you're not producing enough it's a supply and demand issue. It's, but it's, but it's not a supply and demand issue. There's there's enough. There 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 is not enough for for. Yeah, go ahead. This, well, it, I I would disagree with that, and this is it, this is not something that really um, is a main focal point in what's going on in the economy or going on in, in, in the food prices. Well, you said um, that the gas, I mean, the, gas prices are a focal point of the economy. The, and it's sure. A, right. And we, we kitchen shut, table we, issue. We, yeah, go we, ahead. Were in, we were energy independent two years ago. So we can't blame the oil companies for us not being under, under energy independent. We have to blame the administration for changing the policies and executive orders. It's not, this is not a gas company price. That's a deflation. The minute the minute that we shut down the Keystone pipelines, the minute the gas prices went up. When we when we started when we stopped exporting oil and having to start importing oil, the gas prices went up. Yeah. Okay. I, 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 I want to give you a chance to talk about some of the other things that you think that she's doing that are, as you said, un-American. I think that's a pretty strong word to use. Tell me tell me what Rashida Tlaib is doing that you would characterize it that way. Well, there's a, there's a lot of things. She's not representing the American people. She's not representing the district. We talk about uh, you know one of the biggest issues in in in, in the district and and just about every school board is uh, what's going on with the children and what we're what we're teaching our children um, and we're not protecting them. Uh, we're focusing more on uh, you know the 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 pronouns and genders in in these books versus uh, educating our children with math and science and, and English and, and reading and writing so that they can, um, you know, they, they can prepare themselves for college and they can prepare themselves for the, for the, uh, for the future. And in what's going on in the schools, parents, parents just want kids to go to school and learn and have, and, and let them raise their children. And, you know, she's, she kind of leads, she's one of the leading, uh, the leading Congress people on this, and it's and the same with the defund the police. You know, I, I was in Detroit talking to voters, and the first thing that we, we talked to voters in Detroit, and what is the most important issue to the, to most of the voters that I talked to in Detroit is they need more police down there. So defunding the police and making streets on, uh, more unsafe as crime rises, as carjacking rises, as murder rises, as, as robbery rises, we start talking about defunding the police. You know, that's a very, I, I think that's a very un-American and a very unsafe thing. So, first of all, crime is on a long-term downward trend. There are certain crimes that have increased over the last couple of years, mostly tied to, we think, and we won't know for some time because it takes a while to, to determine, you know, the cause of uh, uh, increase or decrease in crime. But, but lots of people think that the pandemic... Uh, had a lot to do with uh, with the increase in crime, and the the idea of defunding the police is not about um, eliminating police officers so much as it is about augmenting the 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 services that that we provide for people so that you don't have police officers, for instance, responding uh, when when you have someone who's maybe having a mental health breakdown and there's somebody there to help that person rather than somebody to to arrest that person and as we saw in Detroit just a few weeks ago uh, end up having 
uh, killed uh, that person. You, you, you don't believe that, that police need change and reform in this country, which is what that whole movement is about? Well, when I talk to the voters down there in the city of Detroit, and I ask them, what is the most important issue to your community? And the first thing they said is, we need more police down here. This is what the voters in Detroit, in the district, are saying. This isn't what I'm saying. This is what the people you've talked to have said. I don't think you can characterize that as what people in Detroit think, but uh, I hear you saying. And it's across the board. I've talked to many people, many voters in the district. I've talked to many people in Detroit. You know, in, in the first, they want more police. They want more. They want they want safer streets. They want businesses to be able to come down there. They want they want their kids to be able to play in the street, mm-hmm. and they can't when it's two hours to get a responding call. You know, when when businesses won't go down there and open up because of of crime, and there's no protection for their staff, for their employees, for you know, for, as a business owner, it's very hard to invest in those areas when you know that your investment is not protected and the citizens in that area want police presence. They want safer communities. You know, in this district, the 12th congressional district goes from Southern Oakland County all the way down, uh, down past Dearborn. And it's completely different. So why is it safer in some communities and not in others? Why? Because of police presence. Um, I want to talk about some of the other things that uh, you want to do. You've, you've focused a little on the, the southern border, uh, and you say we need to tighten that up. Talk about why you feel that's an important issue to people in the, in the 12th Congressional District here in Michigan. Well, it's an important issue to everybody in the United States. We're allowing 200,000 people a month to come through the southern border. Now, I am very much pro-legal immigration, very much pro um, my fiance is a legal immigrant. Um, she's an American citizen from Albania. Um, I am very much pro-legal, but the southern border, allowing these people to just walk across the border, it's not only unsafe as the large amount of fentanyl and sex trafficking that's going on at the southern border. It also is a big drain on the community and it's a big drain on, on um, the American taxpayer. You know, we are, we are housing these people. We are giving them cell phones. I was at a, a speaking event last night where they're talking. It's still very hard to get baby formula on the shelves, but I, you know, down at the southern border, there is baby formula for the people coming across the southern border. So, what's your so, solution? What's your solution? We, we, I mean, you we, have these. You we, have people who want to come to this country, as your wife did, uh, and she came, and she came legally. But she but what's legally. the so what's the what's the process to allow more people to come legally? Well, they, they, they go through the process that we currently have. They go, they, they, they file paperwork. They, they, um, you know, there's, there's steps in already in process to come to this country legally. We allow millions of people. And you wouldn't, so you wouldn't change the system at all uh, to, to, to deal with the number of people who want to come, who find it very difficult, if not impossible uh, to get into the country and then to become citizens. Well, I disagree because there are a lot of people that come to this country legally, they but and they end up coming from overseas. They're not just coming from across the southern border. But when you're just allowing, people but you're okay to walk with the rules the- that determine who can do that. Not everybody can do that. You you agree with that, correct? Not everyone right. is welcome. Well, it just when you invite people to come from this, when you invite people to come and live, what what are they bringing to the community? Well, are they come? Are they coming from? The, are they coming from the southern border? Are they bringing? Are they bringing resources? Are they bringing labor? Are they? Are they actually contributing to the community, 
Or are they coming here and get on government services? They're getting government health care. They're giving maybe government checks. There's a big difference where when when some when someone comes over. And how would you set up the rules to determine that? To determine well, who's who's doing who's doing who's coming for what reason? Well, there's already rules in place for that, and I don't know the entire immigration system. Mm-hmm. But we, what we what I do know is we cannot we cannot handle an infrastructure of having 200,000 people a month come through. We just don't have the services set up for that. We don't have the infrastructure. People are living in tent cities. Mm-hmm. Rapes and murders are up on the southern border. You have you have border patrol agents getting killed. It's just, it's not a safe, it's just not open the floodgates and welcome everybody in as we're catching cartel members, as we're cu- catching um, known terrorists, as we have enough. So how would you close, as, how would you close that off? We would just shut it down like it was prior to the Biden administration. The border was closed prior to the border. We were prior that's to actually, the, That's actually not so. I mean, it, it was. Well, we had. We had about 30,000 people a month coming through, and now we have about 200,000 a right. month. So, it's, so, so it wasn't closed before. We, we've had, I mean, we've, we've had a, a, a border issue, if you want to call it that, for a long time. And the Trump administration made it worse in many, in many regards. Uh, well, I, I, I know exactly about the border situation because when I was in the Marine Corps, I was down on the southern border tracking drug smugglers and illegal immigrants. This isn't mm-hmm. a new problem. But you need to control the flow of, of people coming in so you can vet those people coming in and make sure that they're coming in for the right reasons. We don't need drug dealers coming in. We don't need sex traffickers coming in. We don't need enough fentanyl to kill everybody in the United States, kill our children. Well, I think everybody agrees with that, but the, the, that has... How, how, do you, how do you vet that at 200,000 people a month? Just walking well, I mean, I think a lot of people say we need broad-scale immigration reform to deal with, A, the number of people who want to come legally, mm-hmm. who have every reason to want to come, and then to stop I don't the, the, the illegal immigration. But you're saying you wouldn't change the rules, that, that you think the rules are the way they should be. I don't, I don't, I'm not saying that at all, because I, I explained to you, I don't know every rule, and okay. I don't know every reason, and I don't know, you know, that's, it's, a, it's a very hard thing to look at and see what works, what doesn't, and everything... Everything can be, you know, improved on. There's nothing in, in, in that is, hey, this is the best way and we're going to keep it that way. Mm-hmm. But I think just opening the borders does not allow us to really build a solid immigration plan to allow people to come over and, and, and be able to do what, you know, this country was designed to do, to, be, to come over here and have all the opportunities in the world. Mm-hmm. You know, this is the only country in the world that you can come over and be a first-generation billionaire. That's amazing. Uh, I, I, we're going to have to uh, end our time soon, but I but I want to give you a chance to talk just a little about what you think you need to do in the next couple of weeks uh, to win this race. This is an overwhelmingly Democratic district. I, I give you all the credit in the world for filing as a Republican and running. What what makes uh, Stephen Elliott the next congressperson from uh, the, the from this area? What makes Stephen Elliott the next con- congressperson from this area? Stephen Elliott brings common sense reform and decisions back to the to the 12th congressional district it focuses on american values it focuses on lowering gas prices it focuses on the american family being able to have control over their own children and what their children learn it has control it helps the american family be able to live a, a a good life and have affordable gas prices affordable housing uh and affordable food and, and i think that's what's really most important to most americans and not um anti-Israel and all of these um, 
very hardcore socialist um, left policies that really don't help anybody in the 12th district. They don't help anybody to raise a family, be able to put money away for college and just, you know, people are making decisions on if they need to eat or not. And this is not exactly what needs to happen. And we, Congress needs uh, smart people like myself who are, you know, for the last 20 years have just been making logical, uh, unemotional decisions about money and instead of just writing checks with other mm. people's money. Okay. All right. So, uh, Stephen Elliott, uh, it was really great to have you here. I really do appreciate you coming and sharing your ideas with our listeners, and uh, we wish you uh, good luck in the next couple of weeks, the last couple of weeks of the election. Thank you, Stephen. I really appreciate your time today. Sure. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to hear about the flip side of this race to be the first congressperson representing this new 12th congressional district, Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib, who represents the 13th congressional district right now and is running to be the congresswoman from the 12th district, is going to join us to talk about her ideas, but also to talk about the last four years that she has been in Congress. Stay with us for more Detroit Today. WDET is your place for open dialogue. The music you love. Real news and in-depth analysis. And cultural experiences. The sound of Detroit. 1019 WDET is your public radio station. This is Detroit Today. On 1019 WDET, I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Just to give you a sense of how lopsided the polls say the race is for Michigan's 12th congressional district, uh, according to the Cook Political Report, Rashida Tlaib, who represents the 13th congressional district right now, is running in the 12th district, has a 23-point advantage over her opponent. Now, again, uh, elections happen for a reason. Everybody gets a chance to go and cast their vote for the person that they want. But, uh, of course, uh, this is a strongly democratic part of our state, uh, and it would be difficult for any Republican to get that seat. At the same time, you've got Rashida Tlaib running to represent that seat as a Democrat. And she is someone who, since she has been elected to Congress, has really uh, become much bigger than just a representative in her district or a representative of our state. She has become a national figure, a voice for social justice and equality. She's got a lot of ideas about what she would like to do if she is elected for a third term in Congress, and we are really pleased to have her here to talk about her record so far and what she'd like to do. Rashida Tlaib, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thanks, Stephen, for having me. Yeah. So let's start with this. Uh, tell us why you're running for re-election and specifically why you're running in this new 12th congressional district. You know, I think one of the things that I talk about is being the eldest of 14 and taking care of people all my life. And for me, being able to take care of the community that raised me, communities 
especially the new communities that now want to see someone that can continue to speak truth to power, but actually bring, you know, resources back to the community. I feel very strongly that my lived experience um, is something that is very much needed and missing in Congress and is going to benefit every corner of my district from struggling with, you know, being a child of immigrants, um, struggling in a school system that sometimes um, didn't get the investments it needed, struggling to make sure that there's affordable housing, auto insurance, you know, just the fact that I struggle still with auto insurance. Mm -hmm. All of those things is that, for me, that lived experience more than any degree, uh, more than, um, you know, some of these things that folks focus on is what I bring, which drives me to move with the urgency that I think my residents very much need and feel like is missing in Congress. Mm. So so one of the big differences between this new district and the district you represent now is that uh, it picks up some of uh, southern Oakland County, and and that is a different part of our of our region. But but talk about the difference uh, between the the district you represent now and this new district, and whether you think uh, that requires some different uh, approaches or or ideas. Uh, what is it about uh, the makeup of this district that uh, that you're thinking about right now? Yeah, you know, one of the things that's been incredibly popular all throughout the district in the new areas is the approach that I take with the neighborhood service centers. You know, getting people through everyday challenges is as equal, if not even more, um, in, in passing legislation that changes people's lives, right? For me, making sure that from the um, student um, debt cancellation program to the PACT uh, Act that just passed for our veterans, is making sure that my residents have a place to go that can walk them through those processes. So, I don't care if it's Oakland County uh, communities that, I, that I'm that i hoping to represent next year or my new community of Livonia and Dearborn, many of which love and have already heard and said, we heard you have one of the strongest constituent services programs. That, to me, is, is important and critical. However, I'll tell you just a great story. You know, I've been working on gun reducing gun violence in our country and pushing back against this narrative that we're taking something away, not actually providing more safety and peace for our kids in schools and and places of worship and so forth, that I I do feel this sense of, especially in Oakland County, what happened in Oxford is still very much paying a huge prevalence. Honestly, Stephen, like I just brought it up this past week with some of the precinct delegates in Oakland County, that they feel like we need to do more, more than what is done. And I talked about the fact that I'm one of very handful of, you know, um, members of Congress right now really pushing the ban on assault weapons and how those weapons of war are are why they can kill so many people within such a short period of time. And, you know, again, I'm excited about folks that are focused on that, right? And I'm, you know, realizing, again, it's those experiences they've had, and that it was so close to home Mm. that we can have uh, that kind of violence in, in our schools. And the mental health crisis, again, different lens, but when I hear Dearborn talk about, you know, majority of the public safety issues are stemmed around mental health crisis, that's something as somebody that's represented Detroit, you know, almost six years in the state house and folks, I've, you know, started the first ever Southwest Detroit uh, Community Justice Center where we look at different alternatives in the court system to actually get people mental health services and wraparound services. So that it's not just extreme mental health issues. If you have anger issues, like how do we connect you to deal with those issues? Folks that are, might be bipolar that are not getting the mental health support that they need. So, Stephen, for me, I'm excited because I'm like, oh, I, you know, we did this here. 
when I was in the state house and when I worked in Downriver, what do you guys think about that? And they're like, oh, that's, yeah, we never thought about it that way. And so I'm excited. I guess it's a social worker in me. You know, I'm not a social worker by trade, but I really function that way that I, I think in hope uh, that folks are going to like that I'm really, you know, hands-on and, and very rooted in the community as I take on these issues that I feel like, you know, are not less important in Oakland County than they are in Wayne County. Hmm. I'm talking with Rashida Talib. She is the current congresswoman from Michigan's 13th congressional district. She is running to represent the new 12th congressional district, which was drawn during our decennial redistricting process. Uh, if you have questions for the congresswoman, if you live in this new 12th district and want to talk about the race between her and Stephen Elliott, a Republican whom we just spoke to uh, a few minutes ago, give us a call. Uh, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can work you into the conversation. Okay, Rashida, I want to talk about some specific issues. Uh, inflation, of course, is a huge problem, and it hits working people the most, the people who you spend most of your time talking about and uh, advocating for. Let's first talk about what you think is driving inflation uh, and what you think we need to do. And I'll say up front that Stephen Elliott, your opponent, uh, was talking specifically about gas prices. And he was saying that he believes that the move to cut off uh, our investment in fossil fuels is what, for instance, is driving up gas prices. Now, I said that I thought there were some other uh, factors as well, but 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 address that that point and and yeah. talk about the rest of inflation and and what you would do about it. Well, so one, I, I really want this to be clear that the only way we're ever going to meet our carbon emissions goals needed to meet the Paris Agreement, which I really support, is to avoid to the po- point of no return. Uh, to begin a transition to clean energy now, right? So this idea around expanding fossil fuel production is pouring gasoline on the fire. You know, the, the, it's true. It imposes, a, 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 to me, a systematic like risk, a, a systemic risk to our financial markets as the climate crisis intensifies. And over and over again, when Chairman Powell comes before my financial, our financial services committee, I ask him why, when Europe and other folks are looking at climate risk, why aren't we doing that hmm. when we think about uh, the economy? here at home. But I, I, I have to be very clear, and I think listeners are probably not going to be surprised when I say, you know, to me, the underlying economic problem is, you know, profit price inflation, but it's caused by corporations, right, right raising their prices above their in- increasing costs, right? Corporations are using the increasing cost of materials, components, labor as excuses to increase the prices even higher, resulting in bigger profits. See, that's the difference. So corporate greed, not wages, is playing a huge role in inflation now. It always has. You know, what's interesting, Stephen, is it's funny when, when you come to talk to my residents, they'll be like, what are you talking about? Inflation's been going on in my in my household, right? <laughs> they were, they've been talking about inflation before anybody else was talking about inflation, the high cost of child care, the high cost of health care. For them, they're like, that's inflation to them, right? Mm-hmm. This is like, what are you talking about? The price of bread had been high for Rashida for three years and four years before all of this and everybody talking about it. And so for my folks, it's, they it, corporate greed is really driving and playing a huge component in this. And that's the part that nobody wants to talk about the fact that they are making record profits. Think about it. If, if they, if inflation is only hurting the everyday resident, my America, my neighbors, and it's not hurting the corporations that continue to make record profits. What does that say? What does it say 
when in the head of oil and gas companies are like, yes, we're going to continue increasing gas prices and price gouging. And we passed, you know, a, a bill I proudly supported on the floor around price gouging. But I, I'll tell you, the White House and, and, and other folks know I feel like we need to put more enforcement and teeth behind that. If price gouging is happening with the oil and gas companies, they need to return the money. And we already know it's happening. There's nobody that at least disagrees that it's happening. Folks are coming up with these theories. But I always say, look at the numbers. Look at who's actually benefiting from inflation right now. Mm-hmm. And if you look at that, it's the same people that were hurting my residents before anybody was talking about inflation. They are making record profits, Stephen. And I feel very much there's other components. I agree. I'm not dis- disagreeing there isn't. But I cannot have a really honest, decent conversation about how to address inflation in our country without actually talking about corporate greed that drives these policies. Mm. So, And, and I got to this with... Stephen Elliott as well, that there's there's a balance with, with almost all of these issues. It's not that there's one lever you can pull <clears throat> to, to, to fix those problems. You've got to think about uh, lots of different things all at the all at the same time. But I guess I, I'd love to hear you say what you think Congress in particular can be doing beyond what it's done to deal with uh, inflation. If price gouging is the issue, uh, as you said, we, we, we had a bill that passed that, that uh, tries to address that. Right. It's, it, it's, it's not going to, it's not going to get through the Senate. I don't think. Uh, so, so what, what is the, what is the thing to give people some, some relief? You know, I, I know my residents want people to pay their fair share and be held accountable. You know, I know I'm not trying to, to, to put this in simple terms for folks intentionally, but I just want you to know how, how the, my neighbors see this. You know, when folks talk about and try to blame, you know, the president or others, they say, you know, Rashida, they act like the pandemic. If we did nothing, if we didn't try to open our schools up, if we didn't try to work on affordable housing, we didn't try to work on the issue around food assistance while kids were out of school. I mean, all those things. It's like they're saying, well, they're going to leave us behind. Like, you know, they don't like that. They're being that they're being the targeted and the reason that when we spend money on people, that that is the cause that wages in, in direct help to people is the cause and not not the increased support and like kind of turning your back on what's happening with corporations and how they're using this moment, using the Ukraine war, using the pandemic to make more money. Many of them got money from the federal government and still did still did shareholder payouts. I mean, so for my residents, they want equal fairness and accountability. And Stephen, I am all about, let's sit down and talk about these various, you know, things that economists are saying. But when it comes down to it, no, I don't think there's any economist that doesn't say, yeah, we got to talk about price gouging. We have to talk about what's going on regarding corporate America, where they are literally giving the green light and dismissed as playing a role in inflation. And that's where I think my residents want to say enough. They need to be at the table. They need to pay their fair share, and they need to be held held accountable for price gouging. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue talking with Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib about her reelection bid in the new 12th congressional district here in Michigan. I also want to hear from you on the phones and on social. John on the East Side, Anthony in Southwest Detroit, Jim in Macomb, Deborah in Detroit. We will try to get to you when we get back. If you want to join them, three one three five seven seven one zero one nine is the number here. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. 
This is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We're talking right now with Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib, who is running for re-election to Congress. She's running in a newly crafted 12th congressional district here in Michigan that includes parts of Oakland uh, County, parts of the city of Detroit, and parts of Western Wayne. We're talking about uh, her ideas uh, for representing that district and the four years she's already spent in Congress. want to hear from you as well uh, about what you think about this district. Do you live in that district? Uh, what are you looking at in terms of issues, uh, weighing the candidates uh, that you'll get to cast your vote for uh, uh, on November 8th? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. 1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. Before we go to our listeners, uh, Rashida, I want to talk about uh, a couple of your votes, and specifically your vote against the infrastructure bill, which you and I have talked about a couple times uh, because there was a deal involved in, in that bill <laughs> that uh, that you told me at the time was never going to happen, and that was why uh, why you had to vote against uh, uh, th- that bill. Turned out you were right. Uh, <laughs> the, the, the Build Back Better uh, part of that deal never did come to fruition, but we did get the Inflation Reduction Act and the CHIPS Act. So I, I want to talk first about your vote against infrastructure, which I, I, I got to be honest, there's people who ask me about that. Why did she vote oh, yeah. against that bill? Uh, but then also what we ended up getting out of uh, all of this and whether whether that makes up for the lack of uh, delivering, delivering on Build Back Better. Yeah, no, I mean, I think folks need to realize in Build Back Better, and I don't think President Biden's done in addressing the issue around child care uh, also expansion of health coverage, including, you know, hearing aids and other conversations that, uh, you know, that we have had with the White House around affordable housing, because the housing crisis was existing prior to the pandemic. If anything, the pandemic made it worse. But I think it's important for listeners and folks that understand that it's a false choice to ask my residents to choose between safe bridges and roads and their quality of life around housing, child care, clean air, you name it. But I'll tell you an example. Like in the in the um, the so-called infrastructure uh, bipartisan infrastructure bill, in there is charging stations, which everybody, of course, are like, we need charging stations. But in the bill back better was actually the rebate of close to ten thousand dollars, around that amount, I believe, for uh, a car that's built in the United States. You get a little bit more money, right, mm-hmm. to buy an electric vehicle. It's a rebate, and that's something that the UAW and, and many folks wanted to see hand in hand with. Because well, you're going to build charging stations but you're not going to actually try to get these cars off the assembly line into people's driveways in front of their homes, right? I mean, so they can have access. It was, what's the point of having charging stations if folks can't afford to get the cars? Uh, and then also, how do we get them, you know, again, in people's hands? Uh, so the disconnect and understanding that those, both of them, Build Back Better and the infrastructure package was always being done together. In the last hour, they separated it in this sense that, okay, we're going to be doing that later. There was a promise that it was done. Many of us said, no more. We need more accountability. We passed the infrastructure. I passed the rule to actually take up the infrastructure bill in, in, a, in an exchange and a promise that we've moved the bill back better, which was so critically important to take on some of the poison pills, to be honest, from the fossil fuel uh, uh, subsidies that were in there 
from op- talking about pipelines being reopened, and you name it, Stephen, was in the infrastructure bill. But then we had this huge, you know, high-scale kind of implementation of climate uh, actions from even creating a climate core to dealing with, you know, again, the crisis that we have on air and water and so much more. Mm-hmm. But I think it's important for folks to know, I am pleased that residents ask me about this because they get to know what's really in the bills. But I'll tell you, you know, I am now hearing from municipalities and others saying, wow, this is just not enough. I said, no, it is not enough because you're now competing with the rest of the country on just an, uh, a, probably a quarter of what was really needed to invest in removing lead lines out and so forth. And because I was pushing for, we actually had another $30 billion in Bill Back Better that would have made a big difference in communities like City of Wayne mm. and, and uh, folks in Hamtramck and others that really need to see that kind of partnership from the federal government to remove you know, to get uh, for folks to get access to clean water. Now, wrong or not, but my folks were told that we were going to move them together. And a lot of people literally were confused about, well, wait, isn't this what you we were talking about? It's like, no, they were actually together and they were separated because of one senator wanting to appease his donors base. He got everything he wanted. He got the, 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 the pipeline in there. He got NEPA, certain projects uh, exempted from NEPA, like this process. He got like a, you know a, a large exorbitant amount of money for fossil fuel subsidies, and my residents still didn't get childcare, affordable housing, the, the investment in climate, and so much more. I just felt like it was a false choice to ask my residents to pick between those just because of one senator's donor. Hmm. And so, uh, you know, when, when people say, "Look, she's not supporting, she's not supporting the party. She's not supporting the party's agenda." Well, how do you answer that? Oh, no. President Biden, I think uh, the, the one time we had a really great conversation, um, it was it was he was running and um, he's like, you know, I'm going to need your help. I said, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm going to, you know, be there. I, I'm not going to be your favorite member of Congress, but I'll be there for you. I'll tell you what. But I'm on a different timeline, sir. <laughs> My folks can't wait another year, another month, another week, another day for us to see real investment in people in communities that really have been waiting. They've been promised over and over again, we're going to do affordable housing. We're going to get you clean water. We're going to do all of these things. We're going to fix our school system. We're going to make sure that we have universal pre-K. And so I told him, I'm going to be that person that's going to be like, push, push, push. And he's going to, because I think people don't realize I am supporting President Biden's agenda more than anyone. Like, Build Back Better was his agenda. Hmm. Not the infrastructure bill, y'all. It was Build Back Better. And I'm proud, and, and, and hopefully he's there for another four years that we can actually work on child care and all these other issues that I know he is extremely passionate about. And so, you know, folks might may think it's about that, but at least I know when I talk to the vice president, I talk to the White House, talk to folks about this at the time during this vote, that they respected why, because I told them the agenda he ran on, what he told folks that he needed to get done was, was, was in his Build Back Better proposal, which as a progressive, he brought people together. I, 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 said, I said to the White House, I, I've never been in an event where the folks working on child care were in the same room of folks working on clean water, mm. with the same folks working on housing, with the same folks working on, you know, how are we going to uh, get universal pre-K? I mean, it was amazing, Stephen. And I said to the, to the White House, the president did that with his Build Back Better agenda. More people support getting Bill Back Better done at that time uh, than, you know, was really highly popular, except for the fact that they couldn't get it through some of the folks that obviously have been, you know, tainting the process on the Senate side and listening not to the people in the community they represent, but a handful of folks that 
you know, are are benefiting from us turning our backs to the people. Yeah. yeah. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Uh, let's quickly go to Anthony in Southwest Detroit. Anthony, I've only got a couple minutes left, but wanted to get your question in here. Well, thank you very much. I've heard the word accountability come up quite a bit. And I remember Representative Talibi saying that you wanted to be held accountable by representatives, so uh, by residents. So my question is, other than, you know, the election, how can we hold you accountable in the interim two years? And, for example, your previous guest said that you're for defund the police, but I don't think many people know that a bill passed last year to fund Capitol Police by $2 billion more in the House. And it had zero votes to spare, meaning one vote could have stopped it, and you voted present. So, I mean, I don't really think you're for to fund the police, and how can we hold you accountable other than during the election? Hmm. Uh, Great question, Anthony. Uh, I've got about two minutes left, uh, Rashida, but, but go ahead and answer. Yeah, no, I, Anthony, I'm very familiar with you, and I welcome you to all my town halls, but please try to ask a question, not heckle, like you'll interrupt my speeches. But this is a great way of having this dialogue. You know in there was a huge aspect of mental health for folks that went through the January 6th insurrection. And I just couldn't, of course, I voted president because I just couldn't turn my back on making sure that folks, because we had a couple uh, folks that take their life from suicide, uh, Stephen, after January 6th in the the Capitol Police. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of challenges and things that I felt like was important to try to support folks that went through January 6th. I didn't like everything in there. That's why I couldn't vote yes. But at the same time, I couldn't turn my back and doing the mental health support that I thought was really important, especially with the trauma. And we've heard more and more now from Capitol Police that were there on the ground, that were beaten, that were injured, um, assaulted, and, and, you know, just was in the middle of such a violent attack on our Capitol. And so it was important to me that, you know, yeah, it was important you to support them, but uh, it was it was Stephen. I, but contrast I that, that to, to I defund the police. I was very thoughtful that yeah. we weren't just talking about oh, let's just give them more. It was also about recognizing what they just went through, um, and you know, even afterwards, you can see it in, in the eyes. And I mean, it was such a traumatic uh, experience. Uh, but at the same time, I recognize my residents go through that same trauma when they get that knock on that window, when they mm-hmm. get pulled aside as well. Mm-hmm. Sometimes if they're not, you know, treated, I think, uh, justly, um, uh, and, and they feel unsafe. So I, I recognize all of that. And, and again, that's the lens that I bring. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Rashida Tlaib, Congresswoman in Michigan's 13th Congressional District, running to be the new congressperson in this new 12th Congressional District. It's always great to catch up with you and talk with you about uh, the issues that you're facing there in Washington, but especially great uh, around election time to have you talk with our listeners about your ideas. Thanks so much for coming by. Thank you. Okay, uh, that is going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow. We're going to talk with a church leader of a new gun buyback program in Oakland County. Then we're going to sit down with Sri Thanadar to talk about why he's running for Congress in the new 13th Congressional District and what he hopes to accomplish if he takes office. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.